Podcast. I'm James Schoen. And I'm James Certin. Conversation, expertise and advice on the world and well-being of our teenagers. Hello and welcome to Talking Teenagers. Today we are with Dr. Joe Walker from Steer. Morning, Joe. Morning, James. Morning, James. <laughs> it's great to be with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am mother of three children. I am a teacher by profession. I spent um, 20 years working as a teacher in a variety of different schools and then spent seven years as a local authority advisor for social emotional behavioural issues. And then about eight years ago, uh, began to work with my husband, Dr. Simon Walker, to develop a company called Steer. Wow. Now tell us a little bit about Steer. So what we have created is a tool that is equipping teachers to identify and support vulnerable children much earlier. And we know that the road of adolescence is getting increasingly difficult for young people to navigate. And what we want to do is help teachers identify uh, which children are struggling at different times of their adolescent journey and then know how to give the right people the right support at the right time. You mentioned the idea of the adolescent road, which is a kind of a, a central metaphor, isn't it, of steer. What, what do you perceive as being sort of some of the issues that have made that road so difficult? I think it's a road that is increasingly busy. So there's very little downtime for young people. If you think about when we left school, you know, you got home, there was Cracker Jack on, that was about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was just a lot of downtime, as it were, just to be still within yourself, whereas the life of a young person is 24-7. It's, it's utterly relentless. I think there's so many choices that they have to make. There's so much knowledge that they have. I'm thinking about my own daughter revising at the moment for her GCSEs. Just the plethora of information that's on the internet about every course that she's doing. She's got to make choices about you know, what she's going to uh, watch, what she's going to read. There's just so much knowledge that they've got to discern and, and make sense of. That's, that's really interesting, actually. I hadn't thought of it in that sense, but you used to have a textbook, didn't you? And yeah. if it wasn't in the textbook, well, yeah. you might ask someone, but there's nowhere else you go. Whereas now, the sort of revision's endless, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, you know, for, for some young people, the sort of range of information out there just means they never know when to stop. And I, I, I think you know, the idea of a growth mindset is fantastic. But for some young people, it can be dangerous because the idea that your locus of control within yourself and effort means that you can get to wherever you want to be, the, the, the destination seems, you know, indeterminable. You know, you're always trying to improve you never know when to have that downtime and, and when to rest. And then I, you know, I think, you know, the the internet has brought you know wonderful things, social media. But I think for for young people, are you know their ability to have healthy reference points is something that's difficult to discern. You know, I think. And what would a healthy reference? Well, point I think be? you know if you're thinking about young people saying, you know. You know, am I fit in terms of am I, you know, physically fit, as it were? You know, we used to look at the people in our class and say, well, am I healthy? Am I fit, as it were? Now we're looking at unrealistic role models that are probably the fittest people in the world, as it were, and comparing ourselves to them. So our reference points are, are unrealistic to attain. So I think there's a, there's a huge amount of pressure for these young people on the roads that we just didn't have. Trying to navigate that is very difficult. 
So STEER is then designed to help teachers help pupils navigate that road a little bit better and I guess to see where they're not driving very well or coping very well. That's right and I think whereas previously when we have thought about sort of guiding our children you know we might have have given them a a sort of a questionnaire that asks them you know how are you feeling as it were and I think you know one of the difficulties is with that is that young people struggle to tell us how they're feeling because sometimes they don't know themselves they don't have the language to express it or they tell us what they think we want to know or they hide it because you know they don't want to uh, share that with anybody because they don't know what's going to happen with that information so I think Getting an accurate insight into how a young person is feeling is incredibly difficult these days. So, what is, it, is it because of the, you know, the speed of life and the way their lives are so full that they find it very difficult to stop and recognise how they do feel? Is that the, is that the, that's the point? Yeah, well, I, th- I, th- I think there's many reasons for that. I think that they're living in a world where you know, there's a lot of emotional vocabulary around there in terms of who's depressed, you know, who's self-harming, you know, who's having panic attacks. So I think they're hearing a lot of that language and struggling to make sense of it. So I think it's confusing for them to make sense of that. But I, th- you know, I think, you know, many, many of us would testify to having down days or panicky moments. And I think that there's a sense which we have to normalise that too. It's just the sort of normal struggle of life that brings resilience. You know, the resilience is not the absence of struggle. It, it's the ability to face that struggle and to find strategies to work through it and ultimately be made stronger by that. So, you know, the road of adolescence shouldn't be a nice, smooth road with nice crush barriers either side that we protect our children and you know remove all the bumps from the way so they get from a to b uh, quickly and you know without being scathed in some way it's about accompanying our young people on that journey whether it's our child or our student to help them to you know work through those those difficult situations in their lives so in terms of what that you know you talked about getting understanding how people's are feeling and and how do you actually manage to do that then what what's how does your tool work as it were so um what our tool does is to um measure and track biases in children's thinking that indicate future social and emotional risk so whereas a a sort of more traditional self-report might ask a question that asks a child how they're feeling our understanding of that is that as I said before, there are many children who, who might be feeling as if they're being bullied uh, or might be wanting self-harm but might not disclose that. For some children, it might suggest the idea of self-harming. And what we wanted to do was not to identify those children who were at the point of crushing, if you like, you know, those risks were already manifest, but almost track back and say, well, you know, how is a child thinking at this point of their development? If we know how somebody is thinking, we can start to put in place um, those very low-level signposts that can help them to develop develop more sort of healthier, more rounded patterns of thinking. So, so what what our tool is uh, is looking at is four particular aspects of a child's social emotional development: their self-disclosure, their trust of self, their trust of others, and the degree to which they want to limit or bring change about and identifying children who are struggling to make wise choices about each of those four things enables us to identify specific risks associated with that pattern of thinking. So give us an example Joe then of someone 
you talk about self-disclosure. What do you mean by that? And, and where might the risks be within that context? So self-disclosure, um, I would describe as the, the means by which we share ourselves with another person, whether it's our feelings or our thoughts or an idea. And the best way to explain that is through the metaphor stage. So we all have a public front stage, we all have a more private backstage, and we're making choices all the time as to what we make visible publicly and what we, we hold back. Now, if you've got a child who is perpetually putting things out on their uh, front stage, on that social front stage, the risks associated with that would be a child who is perhaps taking up a lot of time in lessons, always telling people what they think. A child who is putting things out on social media when actually they need to be a little bit more selective about what they share. The sort of person, the sort of young person who has got such an active front stage that they never take time to be still and self-reflect on their backstage. Whereas a child who is choosing to hold a lot of themselves back on their backstage, that can make a child very vulnerable in terms of, you know, if, if they were struggling with a particular emotion, people might not know, so they couldn't help them to, you know, to support them navigate through that difficult situation. They might be developing quite fixed perspectives on something, and if, if you can't draw alongside them, you can't um, help them to nuance that or moderate that in some way. If a child, for example, was to reach for self-harm at a time of strain or pressure, they're very unlikely to self-harm in a way that you would see. So they're unlikely to self-harm on their wrist. They're much more likely to self-harm in their armpit or in their groin or something like that. So a lot of those um, anxieties would be masked. So, you know, the assumption is, or the, the, the sort of uh, misconception that we might make is that children who are low self-disclosing are shy or introverted or hidden in a corner somewhere. They may be, but not necessarily so. They might have very uh, adept, very active front stages, but actually what's going on on their backstage might be masked. It's quite difficult, isn't it, for teachers and for parents to sometimes know with a child, because sometimes they can be quite quiet at home, but actually have be very high disclosing or, you know, sort of healthily disclosing with friends or contemporaries or with a teacher and vice versa for a member of staff. You might not think they, they say very much at school, but at home there's a very healthy kind of model. So I guess this helps get to the real core of actually what a, what a person, an adolescent actually feels about their disclosure levels. and that, That's right. And I think what, what the assessment tool that STEER have, has developed, AS tracking, uh, affective social tracking, is it is tracking young people through adolescence. So it's not a one-off assessment. It's about identifying fluctuations in how a child is disclosing, if we stick with that as an example. So you might have a child who might have very, very healthy self-disclosure, but at a point in year 10, that disclosure suddenly drops. Now, to, to everybody else, that child is exactly the same. Nothing has changed at all. But what the assessment is telling you is that that child's willingness to share has suddenly dropped. Now, for a teacher, it's about saying, well, why might that be? You know, what are the other bits of the jigsaw that might help us to understand that? So let's look at what's going on in a child's academic tracking. Let's look at the behaviour tracking. Has anything happened there? Um, has anything happened, any changes at home? So it's about saying, AS tracking is giving us a piece of the jigsaw, the pupil voice, if you like. Can we use that and map it onto the other bits of the jigsaw that we have as professionals, as parents, that might help us to understand what 
has caused that child to, to be low self-disclosing, then how can we support them? Because if a child isn't making those thoughts, those ideas, those feelings visible, they're going through this time unaccompanied. Whereas what we want to do is draw alongside them and you know, give them the right support at the right time. Do you recognise a time on their journey, say from year three up to year 13 and beyond, is there a time that is the, the peak time and the peak time of challenge for them? Or is it different for different people? Well, I can categorically tell you when our data suggests the most challenging time is, and it's year 10. And I can say that because we track 50,000 children, so we have an enormous data set. And what we see is as young people move into that formal examination period into year 10 there are some very significant changes that happen particularly for girls and we start to see that in year 10 there is a very significant dip in girls self-disclosure there is also a dip in boys self-disclosure but girls disclosure is more stark i was going to ask about sort of gender differences and the data that you've looked at self-disclosure will be one so it's interesting actually because we often think of boys as being the ones who are not sharing but your data has actually sort of counterintuitively almost sort of shown us the opposite, hasn't it? Yeah, I think so. And this is where we're moving away from the, the, the sort of assumption that those who talk the most are the most disclosing. And actually, you know, the, the sort of talking and, and taking up that sort of uh, social space can be a defence mechanism. It can be a mask that young people wear. And I think girls are very skilled at being able to deflect. And I think... You know, it, it's important not to assume that when people are talking, they're actually sharing, you know, what's really going on for them. I also think that, that girls are very adept at, at sort of reading that social and emotional role, road and, and thinking what's the right thing to say in this situation, you know, in terms of, you know, how, how can I manage this impression in the way that I, I want, you know, to do so. Are there any ways in which any advice you give to parents or teachers in, in identifying whether the, the, the communication you're getting is quality communication, as it were, or sort of a bit of a mask? It's quite a difficult thing to unpack, isn't it? It's, it's a very difficult thing to unpack. And I think if we stick with that metaphor of front stage, backstage, I think we've, you know, as parents, we've, we've, we've got to learn to accompany each other through our lives and sort of reciprocal self-disclosure with our children. So watching the news or watching a programme with our children, you know, to, to ask our children what they think about, you know, a particular what's going on in, in a programme, then share what we think and have this sort of journey of chatting as we go through life as parents, you know, perhaps taking the opportunity to say, you know, I, I had quite a tough day today. You know, something that I thought was going to go well didn't go as well as I thought it was going to. You know, and allowing our children to accompany us through difficult time, modelling that healthy self-disclosure. You know, asking our children for a bit of advice. You know, what would you do in this situation? You know, I'm, I, um, you know, I've got a big decision to make. You know, what, what do you think the, the pros and cons are of that? And I think if we, you know, if we model that healthy self-disclosure, that healthy backstage self-disclosure to our children, they will see that it's something that can be done in a safe way and, and they'll be more inclined to do that with us. We can be a bit sort of, you can sort of chase the kids down the hole sometimes, can't you, and trying to get something out and actually rather than making the focus on them, 
turning it around a little bit and talking about you is actually sort of a healthier way of getting them to speak about them again it's it's just trying not to i mean i know from uh, my children uh, they hate to be the, the center of attention or the glare as, as it were you, you can find a lot more out in the sort of fringes of the picture when they don't feel they're in the center of it and i think that's partly what you're alluding to isn't it is not mm-hmm. making them right let's interrogate you about your day or about you yeah yeah, I, I think so. And, and, and doing things together, you know, lear- learning to do something together. So I was telling you both just before the podcast that we've joined a, a boot camp on a Saturday morning and Simon and I go and our youngest daughter comes with us too. And it's just great to, to learn to do something together and to, to be mutual in it. And, you know, to have Olivia sort of encouraging me to do, you know, my 24th squat, as it were, <laughs> and panting away again, come on, mum, you can can do it yeah. you know because you know we are journeying together I've never been a parent before ever you know and so you know we are you know we're a team you know we doesn't mean that our children are our friends as it were you know we're parents and, and, and mother as it were but you know we're accompanying each other through this journey yeah so so having been involved you know in schools as a sort of behavioral expert and now being you know with the, with the, the business of steer is there anything that teachers should know about a, a, a priority area that they should be looking into? Two things, I think. One is to to recognise that children learn most when they hear messages in real time. So yes, we're giving general messages in assembly, but actually it's in it's it's in the everyday conversations that we're having that we need to apply those messages to our children and and in in a, in our sort of real time signposting in our lessons so you know it's fine having mindfulness lessons but actually let's have mindful moments in the middle of a geography lesson let's not just assume that a child can go from a history lesson to a, a physics lesson and make that transition in a couple of minutes start the lesson with a mindful moment as it were. So, you know, appropriate those general messages in in lessons. And then I think, you know, recognise that different children will hear the same message in different ways. So, you know, when, when, you know, you're starting at the beginning of uh, year 10 and you're talking about, you know, the importance of knuckling down and starting to, you know, put more time aside for, you know, your, your, your homework, your prep, just recognise that there will be some children that really need to hear that message and then there will be some children that are already living with that message and we need to give them slightly different messages. So call different children to mind rather than giving general messages and think about how different children's thinking biases will affect the way they hear the same message. I think that's true when we apply that to our own children as well, isn't it? Our children are not the same. And actually what's worked with the eldest maybe not will not work with number two and um, we just have to be careful that we don't <laughs> sort of think that this the same message is going to be a, a good message for each person is it some some people and you you allude to the idea of work some people have a very efficient work ethic and uh, you have to sort of say you need to calm down and not work so hard and others need a bit of a boot don't they i think what i'm hearing there is it's about the individual just a blanket message is never going to reach you know, it might hit some people, but it's not going to hit everyone in the way that you want it to. I think that, that, that there's another uh, important message that I'd want to give to schools, which would be, you know, we've, we've talked about helping children to steer effectively, to read the road and make wise choices 
about how they respond to the different contexts, different relationships that they're in at different times. But there are some children who are steering that road very effortfully, who are very conscientiously trying to do the right thing at the right time for the right reason. And I think as schools, we need to recognise that they are often the children that we really like. You know, they are the children that you know, manage lots and lots of different activities. They're the children who you know, we often ask to show different parents around the school because they're always making wise judgment about what they say and how they say it and who they say it to. They represent the school really well. But there is a cost associated with that in terms of, in order to do that high level of conscious steering, that's absolutely exhausting. And to do it all the time in every context of your life can leave you burnt out and exhausted. And I think we need to be very aware of the young people that we are loading at this particular point in time who are putting more and more pressure on themselves to manage every area of their lives so conscientiously, so competently, that um, even if they don't steer and crash off the road at school, we're perhaps storing something up for university. And those children who have been able to steer really well, really effectively on our school road, perhaps even been head girl, head boy, got a whole string of A-stars or whatever, by the time they get to university and they're on a great big superhighway and they're having to manage so many other aspects of their lives, their finance, their washing, everything else, they struggle to do that. And that's where those psychological crashes might happen at university. You think, well, where did that come from? You know, we would never have imagined it. Um, so I think, you know, we need, to, we need to be skilling our young people up for, you know, a sustained, healthy life. I think you, you describe that as over-regulation, don't you? Yes, And I'd we like do. us to talk about self-regulation because I think it's such a key part of, of STEER, or the whole name suggests it, doesn't it? I mean, practically then, you, you, you've got a pupil. You can, you, you know, the one you've sort of just outlined, what do you do? I mean, how, how practically do you help them uh, in that sense if you feel they are over-regulating or they are almost a bit too perfect and it is so effortful? How are you going to help that, that, that people? How are you going to help your own child in that situation? Helping those young people to do something that is effortless. And if you think about children who are effortful, it's helping them to do things that have no productive value something that to them might feel a bit lazy as it were so you know I, I I think about you know the sort of child who you know is always trying to read a book that's going to sort of nourish them or you know help them to develop you know and think you know how am I going to improve here uh, is this work related as it were just to read you know a rubbish book it's a bit of trash absolutely that is 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 just going to help them to to relax giving them permission to 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 say no to something you know to to not feel they always have to live up to the expectations that they have of themselves because i think that the overregulating child is not the child who wants to be better than other people or be the best it's not about social ranking it's about that in a drive to be the best that you can be, that sort of perfectionist element to always do your best. Is there people pleasing in that as well, or is that? Well, I, I think that I think it's 
it's less about people pleasing and trying to find value in other people's eyes it's it's more around conscientiousness it's trying to be the best that you can be so yes it is about not letting other people down as it were but it's it's more about conscientiousness i remember you talking to me about a particular people who was definitely over-regulating in my boarding house and uh, he he kept getting one quite innocuous thing wrong and i was always a bit reluctant to sort of tell him off but you said no you've got to haul him up on it almost be a bit brutal yeah so that he realizes that he'll get a detention and the world doesn't stop everyone carries on enjoying him he's still doing very well but actually we shouldn't quite easy as a teacher or as a parent to overlook something going wrong with with people like that whereas in actual fact your advice would be no no make sure that you highlight it and and not not in a way that's sort of brutal kind of not brutal i used the word earlier but but just say look that's wrong this it's, is the consequence yeah, it's okay. but everything's fine don't worry life yeah. goes on absolutely mm. and absolutely. that's teaching them the reality that actually it's okay when things go wrong that's right and you know if you think about the road that we are steering that we're we're having to navigate there are all sorts of things that are going to happen in our lives and if we haven't learnt what it's like to drive on a really dark, bumpy road. You know, when we we find ourselves on that road, you know, you know, we we we're, we're without resource. You know, and you know, we really struggle. Whereas, you know, it's really important, really important to to help those children struggle a little bit. In terms of helping choices and self-regulation, and you've talked about those four different areas which you sort of uh, track. You know, how do we? Again, I'm not trying to sort of be practical here. How do you really help pupils to make positive choices? Well, where, where I think the, the, the data from AIS tracking helps teachers is that it helps a teacher to understand what the next step is for an individual child. So, you know, if you think about, let's talk about trust of self, for example, the degree to which we are self-trusting or self-questioning. Now, we need to know when to trust ourselves and when to question ourselves. We need to know when to you know, be open to the influence of other people, as it were, or you know, when to trust ourselves and to be less open to the influence of other people. Now, for the child who is very self-questioning, the goal for that child is, is to, to be able to trust their idea. You know, so let's say if you were you know, in a lesson and you've got um, children working in pairs, thinking about a response to a maths problem, you know, for that child to trust their own sort of response first rather than saying, what do you think? You know, what, what's, you know, and then sort of taking on board the other person's response, as it were. Whereas if you've got a child who is very self-trusting, you know, the goal for that child is to learn to listen to the other person's idea first rather than assuming that it's their idea that's always going to be right. So, you know, as a teacher, it's about saying we need to build in opportunities for children to to learn to be self-trusting, self-questioning. So, you know, building in opportunities for that paired talk, as it were. But for some children... It's about, you know, particularly, you know, telling them that actually, you know, you know, your goal for this term is when you're working in a paired situation is, you know, to make sure that you share your idea because you actually might be right. You know, don't assume that the person you're paired with, whereas for the other child, it might be about saying, you know, in, in, in this particular activity, I want you to take the time to listen to the other person before you share your idea. 
coming back to something you said earlier, which is worth reiterating, I think, certainly in my experience of, of working alongside AS tracking, is surprisingly to me initially was just how very small, simple things do have a really positive impact. And actually, it's almost like you just give them a bit of a nudge on the road, isn't it? And they're sort of steering off and you, you just, it's a very gentle prod back and then off they go again. And simple techniques, very small interventions have had amazing consequences. And that's worth knowing, I think, isn't it? Because actually, we're, sometimes we're a bit, as teachers or as parents, we're, we're slightly sort of thinking, oh, well, that won't have much of an impact. But actually, small little things that are kind of intentionally done can be incredibly impactful. I think so, and it's, 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 it's because you know why you're doing it. So you've heard that child's voice, and you know how to respond. You, you, you know, it's not a scattergun approach. As it's targeted, it as you say. Really targeted, and, and it's proactive. So it's not that the child has crashed and, you know, you've got to find a way to, to you know, get them back on the road again. You know, these, these, aren't ch- these are children who are just struggling to steer, so they are really small, little nudges, you know, because, you know, it's just an insight into how they're thinking that you can just draw alongside them and interact with them a little bit more intentionally because you know the message that they need to hear. Can I ask, the, the, um, the basis of the information is the questionnaires that the the young people need to fill in and are they good at filling them in honestly or are they can they sometimes be a bit silly with it well it's highly dependent on how well pupils are prepared for the assessment and I think if you're going to introduce an assessment in school children need to know why you're asking them to do it who's going to see the data what you're going to do with that data and how they're going to benefit from it and I think that's that's where we train teachers to give children the right message. You will get the odd child who will try to manipulate the assessment. I think we we, we really discover because you know full disclosure I've been using this for a while but even the ones who are trying to manipulate it or are silly they're giving you valuable data in itself aren't they? They're telling you something about themselves that is useful going forward. They are. I mean, we've, we've always used algorithms that can help us to identify children who are manipulating the assessment. And we've always given that information to teachers so that teachers can draw alongside a, a young boy or a young girl and say, you know, just wondering how seriously you took that assessment. Let, let me just explain why your voice matters to me so much, how I'm going to use this data. Now, this last year, we've actually given that message in real time to the pupil doing the assessment. So if there was a child who was um, clearly manipulating the assessment, they'd get a little pop-up at a particular point in the assessment that would say, James, just wondering how seriously you're taking the assessment. Would you like the opportunity to start again? And we have quite a number of children who do do that. And I think, you know, sometimes it's just, you know, trying things out, as it were. And who wouldn't? Who wouldn't have a go? Um, They'll probably go very far in life. But it's about saying, do you want another go? Do you want to do to, um, Do do this properly? And, you know, I think the number of children who do try to manipulate the assessment, 0.01. Are there any, uh, I was interested, you talked about, say, for example, year 10 girls and a real dip in their um, self-disclosure. Are there any other kind of headlines in any of the other four areas across the year groups that, you know, again, that teachers and parents could be aware of? This is a 
reasonably common thing in boys or girls at this particular stage? We certainly see a gender bias in the factor seeking change. So seeking change and the degree to which we are wanting to explore, expand or change our ideas, our thoughts, our relationships, our opportunities, or the degree to which we are wanting to uh, consolidate them, make them more secure, make them more under our control, if you like. And we need to be able to do both. This goes back to self-regulation, the ability to steer, to know when to take a risk, when not to, when to make a new friend, when to, when to invest in the friends you already have, you know, when to take a new opportunity on board, uh, or when to say, do you know what, I'm taking too many opportunities at the moment, I need to just do fewer things well, as it were. So we're wanting children to make those wise judgments. Now, what we find is that there is a definite gender bias in boys having a higher seeking change bias. So boys more exploratory, more risk-taking, more interested in novelty. And I think as teachers, that sits with our own experience of, of, of young men. And this isn't about saying, oh, we want to get everybody, you know, to be right in the middle because we've, you know, recognised that there are risks with children who overthink when to take a risk and when not to, when to, you know, change, when not to change, as it were. But if you have young men who are habitually wanting to take that risk, um, seek change, risks associated with that. So, again, it's just about identifying which of the boys who are most at risk of not making wise judgments and then drawing alongside them perhaps in the particular context that you think that they might struggle most you know perhaps you know if you were teaching younger children you're going on a school trip and it's all exciting and new you know some children will take that in their stride a couple of children might really struggle in that it's all new they might do things on that school trip that they might not do when they're back in school as it were but knowing that that particular child might struggle in that particular context signpost them in real time do you see what i mean that's true i think uh, online as well isn't it mm. yeah the online world can, you can be very impulsive you can feel like there's no filter there's it's a sort of open risk scenario and trying to get to sort of prepare them for using that is important isn't it i think that's right and i think where the as tracking data will be very helpful is that because we're tracking self-disclosure and seeking change it can help you to understand where that young person might take those risks. So if a child is high, you know, has a high impulsivity, high seeking change, and is also high self-disclosing, they're more likely to take those risks socially, at a party, you know, in, in a public setting, as it were. But if you've got a child who has a very high seeking change bias, but they're low self-disclosing, they're much more likely to do that in a hidden context. They're much more likely to engage in something online, take a risk there. And you, you might have no idea that that might be a risk for that particular child. You might perceive them very differently. So it's, it's about understanding a child's composite biases and helping you to understand how you know, that presents a, a sort of nuance of risk. You often talk about trust of self and trust of others being interconnected as well. Could you just quickly unpack that for us? So if we think about how we see ourselves, it's always related to how we see others. So our trust of self is always related to our trust of others. So we talk about four different trust strategies that emanate from trust of self and trust of others. So, you know, for example, if you had a, a high trust of self and a low trust of others, 
you might experience school as quite a competitive place, quite a socially ranked place where your sense of self is highly dependent on being better than other people. You know, you, you might feel successful, you might have a degree of status, but it, it's dependent on being better than others. And, you know, the risks associated with that are around being very self-reliant. You know, I can do it myself. You know, I don't trust other people to be able to help me. But it's also about being quite sort of what we would describe as attention indifferent, you know, not being open to, you know, the advice of other people as it were. Whereas a child who is perhaps low trust of self and high trust of others might experience school as quite a vulnerable place, you know, a place where they are feeling, you know, that they might be ignored, that they might be overlooked in some way. And, you know, what they might try to do is to align themselves with other people in order to feel safe, to feel secure, to feel successful. You know, risks associated with that are, you know, trying to, um, you know, please other people, which is what we were saying before, James, you know, trying to be dependent on praise, you know, trying to you know, curry favour, you know, with other people, taking on board other people's ideas rather than finding your own voice. So thinking about how a child sees themselves in relation to other people is, is, is very, very important to help us to do. I mean, it sounds like the most incredible product that you've got. And how many schools are you now working in? We are working with 110 schools in the UK and about 15 schools currently across the world. And the aim is to do more? The aim is to do more. The, the, the aim is specifically to, to make this tool more available in the um, state sector. So the tool was developed within the independent sector, partly because they are independent by name, but also by process. You know, they have the autonomy to develop new tools. And you know, part of AS Tracking was, was working with a number of pioneer schools to develop a tool that was, was going to be very usable in schools. Now that we've developed a school and it's been through many iterations of development, is to make sure that the children in the state sector also have the opportunity um, to have the right support at the right time. And we're, we're working with one of the largest educational trusts at the moment. We have 15 schools using AS Tracking as part of that educational trust, and the goal is to make that opportunity more widely available. And if, and if people are interested, Joe, in knowing more about um, AS Tracking, where, where do they go and have a look? So um, two websites that I would point you to. One um, is steer.global website where the academic provenance of AS tracking is is available for you to, to read there. There's also sections on that that help parents to understand you know, what the data is, data protection, all the things that parents might want to know, examples of questions, how it can how it, it differs to other tools out there. But there's another website that I would direct parents towards and it's called Steering Parents. I'm sure that um, you can put a link on the podcast, I hope, um, which helps parents to understand the four AS tracking factors that are measured in schools and then gives parents or carers signposts that they can draw on as parents uh, within their own family to help their children to develop wise choices about the four factors that we've talked about. Thank you so much for spending time Thank with us today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to Talking Teenagers. 
Music has been by Rue Paynes. Editing by George Purvis and James Certin. For more information about I Can and I Am Charity, who provide presentations and resources and help build self-confidence in young people, visit their website at icaniam.com. Be your soul.